0: For more details, please check out our website, www.heritagebaptist.co.za. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It is good to be together on the Lord's Day once again. Let me invite you to turn to God's Word in Acts chapter 9. And while you're turning there, uh... We are back in the, the book of Acts for the spring. Uh, we are returning to the series on Acts. We are taking a break from First Chronicles. Um, spring has sprung, and I'm a man from Zululand. I prefer preaching when it's warm. <laughs> um, so I'll let Michael handle the winter months. Um, And while you turn to Acts 9, let me remind you what the book of Acts is about. Perhaps many of you haven't been with us. We started this series last year, and we last saw it, I think, by the beginning of April. We were last in chapter 8 at the beginning of April this year. Um, The book of Acts is the second part of a two part volume in which Luke writes to Theophilus to strengthen his faith. Uh, Theophilus, We're not sure exactly where Theophilus is, but he's somewhere in the Roman world. And Luke is writing first the, the first part, the Gospel of Luke, and then the second part, the book of Acts, so that he says in Luke chapter 1, he's writing all of these, so that Theophilus might know for a certain the things that he has been taught. In other words, so that Theophilus and the Christians with Theophilus where he is, might, be, might know for certain what Christianity is that they've been taught, what they've believed, that all these things actually happened in the way that they were. And so, uh, the book of Luke tells us about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the book of Acts tells us what happened when the church was born, when the Lord Jesus Christ left, and the church was here uh, after, his le- after His leaving. What did the church do? And what we find in the book of Acts, we, tried, we understand what the challenges that the church faces and how is the church to respond to those challenges. Uh, what, is, what is the church? Who are the leaders of the church? What is the message of the church? What is the church trying to achieve? Really, when you look at the book of Acts, you see the origins of the church and the, the mission of the church in its purity Uh, without all the stains that inevitably come through the passage of time. And so we have turned to the book of Acts to see the answers to these questions and many more. And this morning we see how the last apostle, the final apostle, came to be an apostle. That is... Uh, The the focus as the the text now changes from focusing on Philip who was taking the gospel to Samaria. The text now abruptly changes to focus on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So with that uh, as a bit of a background let us now get into our text. And I'll read the entire passage for you from verses 1 to 19 and we will uh, consider it together. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from chief priests, from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's Word. How does God conquer his enemies? One of the many challenges that people have regarding the God of the Scriptures is that he presents himself often as a God of vengeance. And that is true. Throughout the Scriptures, we are told that God will in fact crush his enemies. As soon as Adam and Eve fell, God says the serpent will be crushed. And throughout the surgeon of Israel, the enemies of God are put to death even gruesomely as we read in Joshua. And you go all the way to the end of the book where, Je- where Jesus sits on a throne and the smoke from the, su- from the suffering of his enemies rises in his presence. And the idea for throughout the scriptures is that no one should be comfortable being called an enemy of God because it does not end well for enemies of God. Uh, Thinking of this principle, it's a bit distracting, brother. <laughs> Thinking of this principle, uh, the Lord Jesus taught a parable and said to the rich man who stored glory for himself without being rich towards God, he said to him, you fool, your life is required of you. Well, so that is the tenor of the scriptures, that there are those who are enemies of God. And because they are enemies of God, they, they are foolish to stay in a state of being enemies of God. Now, While that is the the tenor of the scriptures, there is a stronger biblical emphasis yet that even enemies of God can receive mercy. That in the way that the Lord works, he does not delight in the death of the wicked. That in the way he works, there is an opportunity for any and all enemies of his to be transformed into friends of his. No story in the New Testament thrusts this truth in our faces more than the story and testimony of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was nothing but a murderous, hate-filled, and spiteful enemy of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He hated, he hated Jesus with a passion. He hated his message with a passion. And he hated the disciples even more. Saul of Tarsus wanted nothing but death and entire destruction the followers of Jesus. And yet God not only forgives him, but makes him the most influential apostle in the life of the Christian church. The story we have seen so far in Acts has moved from the growth of the Christian community in Jerusalem to them being scattered and then, and then sending the gospel to Samaria, which was what we saw in chapter 8 which is where we left it. And then here now in chapters 9 to 12, the focus transitions from the gospel going to the Gentiles. How does the gospel now move from Judea to Samaria and then to Gentiles? And it begins here with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And so to help us walk through this text, we're going to attend to it under three different headings. The third heading we'll only only consider next week. The first heading is Saul's murderous activity before his salvation, which we'll see this morning. And the Lord's activity in saving Saul. The third third heading, which we'll consider next week, is Saul's activity after his salvation. So first, let us consider Saul's activity before his salvation. Verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Luke here tells us that he was still breathing threats against the church. And he saw, so much so that he went to get authority to go and grab all the believers, the believers who had ran away from the persecution that he had started in Jerusalem, and they ran away to different places. Now he wants to actually go and collect them from where they are. Not only does he want them to not preach the message here in Jerusalem, but he also wants them to not preach the message anywhere. They should be come and they should be brought back here, and they should be dealt with here. You'll remember that we met Saul in chapter 8 as he presided over the killing of Stephen. Stephen. And after that killing of Stephen, you'll remember that he is the one who caused Christians to scatter. But he wasn't satisfied. And so this is what now happens. He's breathing these threats and he wants to bring them to justice. But let me ask you this, dear church. In this short description of Saul that we see here in these first two verses, who does Saul remind you of? Who's the one who breeds fire and threats against the people of God. Who is the one whose job is to accuse the people of God? Who makes it a joy for them? Who's the one? That, that's the thing that he does. He accuses the people of God and he breeds murder and, and breeds out murder and threats against them. It's Satan, right? If you said Satan you'd be correct. The language used here is nothing short of satanic. And the language used here is a language that shows us a man who wants nothing to do, nothing, nothing else, but to destroy the church. That is what he wants to achieve. Saul is not interested, he's not just interested in stopping them from proselytizing, that is make, stopping them making them converts. He's not just interested in stopping them preaching the message, he wants them snuffed out. He wants them dead. That's what he wants. He wants these people completely shut down. What do you think with me for a moment here this morning? Why would he want these people dead? Why would he want them finished? What's the thing that is driving him to have the church completely finished like this? What would fill his heart with such hatred for the people of God? I want to read for you from his own words when he describes himself in Galatians chapter 1. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 1 from verse 13. You can turn there if you want. But he says this, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age uh, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Did you catch it? Zeal. Zeal. He was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He repeats the same thing in Philippians chapter 3. He says, as to zeal, when, I'm, when he's comparing his former life to all the other people who were in Judaism, he says, nobody can touch my zeal. I had such zeal that I wanted all the Christian church to be dead. This is in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, My zeal was so high, I wanted to kill Christians. That's how much of a Jew I was. And after Stephen made it clear the position of Christ that these people, the Jews, are the problem, that because they are the ones who are the ones who oppose the works of God, Paul, because of his zeal, could not stand it. In his own words, he was so zealous for the law and so zealous for the ways of his forefathers that he could not allow Christianity to to exist in his own eyes. And so, he pursued them to death. And this necessarily brings a a question to our minds. What are you zealous about? Well, I don't imagine that there's something you're so zealous about that you want people killed, if you if you have something like that, speak to me immediately after the service. <laughs> Let's snip this in the bus. I hope you're not so zealous you want people dead. But what are you so passionate about? What what we see here, we see what we see in this text is that passion and zeal does not equal right and correct. You follow? Passion and zeal make fun posts on the internet but they do not equal righteousness. Passion and zeal might get you in with the crowd but it will not necessarily get you right with God. Just because you're passionate about it does not mean that you're above reproach. Passionate, passion and zeal are like anger. They do not produce the righteousness of God as James tells us. There's many examples of of how people are passionate about things. They're so zealous about things, but they're entirely and completely wrong about those things. Many people say, I was born this way. They feel it in their bones. This is the reality in their lives. But that doesn't mean that they're right. But they say, I was born this way. This is the reality for me. And then you're supposed to take that as it means that what you want to do is correct. No. No. I was born with a lot of sin, doesn't mean I can go ahead and do it. See David says, in sin did my mother conceive me, must I now go ahead sinning just because I was born that way. There are many examples, people are, are, people are zealous for thing, how things used to be done, so zealous. This is how it used to be done, you know when these people were running things or when these people were doing this, this is how things used to be done and, and this is the way things should be done. Well, not necessarily. Things change. Time passes. Just because because things were once done that way doesn't mean that they must be done that way now. See, zeal does not equal right. Passion does not equal righteousness. What does matter then? What matters is truth. What is true? And in this case, in the case of Saul... Here's the question that's really in front of Saul. Is Jesus Christ the Messiah, yes or no? You see, if Jesus Christ is the Messiah, then, then, then Saul is wrong. His passion and zeal and love for the, for the ways of his forefathers is completely is irrelevant. If Jesus Christ is in fact the Jewish Messiah. And the reality is that he is. And so Saul was wrong. Saul considered Christians to be blasphemous, and yet he was the one who actually was opposing God. See, I suppose this is one of the reasons why Scripture makes a big deal about humility and listening. Massive deal the Scriptures make about humility. Humble yourself and listen. Don't be quick to speak. Listen. If you pay attention and listen more than you speak, you might ponder the issue better rather than go out fighting and swinging with your passion. Well, may God help us to test our zeal in the light of his word. And may he give us the necessary humility to admit when we're wrong. May we not be a people who are zealous and passionate about things in a manner that is actually incorrect when when it turns out that we are the ones who are wrong. Well, that's the first lesson here. But there's, there's another lesson uh, regarding Saul's uh, passionate pursuit of the church. And this is the main lesson really in the book of Acts. Saul here typifies for us some of the dangers and troubles that accompany the existence of the Christian church while it is on earth. See, he typifies the attitude general of the world as it tries to coexist with this new humanity that God is creating. And we have to have this clear in our minds. This is a reality even today. Right at the beginning of the church, she is heavily persecuted. And this theme continues wherever the church happens to be. There is hatred against her, there is violence against the church right from the beginning. I want you to consider even for a moment that Saul himself, after he becomes a Christian in verse 23, what happens to him in verse 23 of chapter 9? They plot to kill him. He was just just now, like n- just 22 verses in between, 20, 20, nine, 20 verses between. One, one point he was a Jew, they were giving him the right to go and kill Christians, but now because he has turned and is now a Christian, now they are plotting to kill him. This is what we see throughout the book of Acts from the beginning. In Acts chapter 2 up until the end, wherever the church is, there is a fight. Wherever the church exists, trying to be correct, honoring the, Lord, the, the Lord's word and naming the name of Christ, there is a fight. And this is why Christians should not only expect opposition, but treat it as a normal part of life. See, the apostles say nothing unusual is happening to you when you suffer for the kingdom. It is part and parcel of the Christian life. The Lord Jesus told his disciples many times that what they did to the master, they will also do to the student. So, what's happened to you? You're uncomfortable at home when it's time to do stuff for the ancestors. Now there's a a lot of discomfort at home. Welcome to Christianity. What's happened to you? You're, you're a young person who struggles with temptation and has chosen to get married while you're, young, so, uh, while you're young so that you can honor the Lord in your life and in your body and your peers laugh at you. Welcome to Christianity. You're a businessman who refuses to use brown envelopes in order to get that contract and your business partners are unhappy with you. Now there's just this strife, this, this challenge, this, this opposition, even in your own business. Welcome to Christianity. That's what it is. That's what you've signed up for. The Lord Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but what? But a sword. From now on, there's going to be father against son and, and daughter against mother and brother-in-law against, and all of them because of his name. So that is why, dear, dear Christians, We must not be surprised when these things happen to us. Your job in all the discomfort that you are going to experience. If you haven't experienced it. Oh shame. Wonderful. It's so nice. Good luck. (laughs) It's coming. You young Christians who just got baptized. It was a wonderful time last week. You're thinking oh this is so lovely. People love me. Just wait. (laughs) Just wait. Just wait. It's coming. So what's your job? okay? Because number one, nothing unusual is happening to you when the world opposes you for naming Christ. It's It's part of it. It's part of the package. There's a lot of verses about it. There's more verses about dealing with that kind of stuff than there is about dealing with just having a great time. Because that's part of it. So what's your job? Your job is to not taint your testimony. Do not be tempted to fight back against the world as though your battles with flesh and blood. You see, the church here could have started to plot the death of Saul. They could have said, "Now, man, Saul is chasing us. We're leaving. I had, I just built my home in Jerusalem and now Saul is doing all of this now. man, this guy needs to be put out. You could see now there Peter and James and the others trying to, okay, who's going to be the assassin? How are you going to get him? But they don't do that. Why don't they do that? Because they know that the Lord Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Your job, do not not swap the word of God for human systems as a way to retaliate. Yours is to remain steadfast in your Christian graces. Unlike famous Christian celebrities today, Do not give in to the temptation of choosing political sides and fighting culture wars. Over and over again, the scripture says, vengeance is the Lord's. Yours is to mind your own business. Seek to serve God quietly among the Gentiles that he has placed you. Now, let's come back to Saul. He, he, wants, to, he wants to kill the church. He's, he's determined, he's pursuing the church with, with violence. So how do you think the Lord Jesus is going to deal with this? How do you think the Lord Jesus is going to deal with this man who is with all of this passion and zeal fighting to go against his people, to go against the church that he guaranteed the gates of Hades will not prevail against. What do you think the Lord Jesus is going to do? Look at verse 3. Now as he went on his way he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul why are you persecuting me? And he said who are you Lord? And he said I am Jesus whom you are persecuting but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by their hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The expectation that is built all the way from the Old Testament into the New Covenant is that the enemies of God will be destroyed. And when I say destroyed, I mean destroyed. That is the whole point of the doctrine of hell. With the doctrine of hell, God is lining up his judgments against the people who are opposing him, belittling him, and certainly people who are murderous against the church that he is building. The expectation that we see is that the enemies of God will not escape the general and specific judgment of God. So who are the enemies of God? Let me just give you a sample. False teachers. In Second Peter we're told that their judgment is not asleep, it is coming. What about those who actually murder God's people? Well in Revelation six, Jesus tell the, 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 the saints are told to wait a little to wait a little while. Just wait a little while, the judgment is coming against those who kill the saints. So the expectation as you and I are reading this our expectation should be Jesus is going to come and deal with this man decisively and destroy him and we should be terrified for him if any of one of us here are relatives of Saul and reading this we should be be very sad and scared for our relative that's what it's that's what that's what the expectation is if you have a proper understanding of the whole entire of the old testament and the new but there are things here in this approach of the Lord Jesus to Saul that shows us that Jesus is not approaching Saul with judgment and wrath, but rather he's approaching him with mercy. There are three things that show us in this passage that this is an approach of mercy. First, the appearance of Jesus is blinding light. Do you see that? A light came from heaven and shone around him. Now what does that remind you of? See, each time the Lord shows up to show His glory in this way throughout the Old Testament and the New, it is to make friendship. He appeared in this glorious way to Moses. Do you remember this? He appeared in this glorious way to Daniel. Do you remember that? He appeared in this way to Isaiah, and he appeared to this way in this way to the three disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration. Whenever someone is given generally, when someone is given this sight, this glorious sight of the splendor of God, such that it blinds the eyes, it is to make friendship. He is to reveal himself and then says, usually what usually comes after this is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So already, just in seeing this first line, we already should be thinking, ah, this is, this is not, he's going to deal with this guy in a very different way. Now let's look at the second thing. The second thing is that he is communicated to and Jesus reveals his identity to him. See, Jesus speaks to him and he says, And he he calls him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul responds, who are you, Lord? Because he's recognizing that he's in the presence of glory. He's not recognizing yet that this is Jesus. He's just recognizing that I'm in the presence of a glorious being. And so he calls him Adonai. And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city. And you are to be told what you are to do. And now notice this. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. In fact, when you go to Acts chapter 22 and verse 9, you get to see that actually they didn't hear the communication. They just heard a thunderous voice. They didn't hear what was being said. They just heard a thunderous voice speaking. But the person who understood what was being said is who? Saul. He's being communicated to. We don't know what happened to those rest of those men. We never hear anything about those men that were with Saul later. What happened to them? Did they become Christians? We don't know. The person that this was coming to is Saul. Jesus calling him by name, revealing his name to him, and revealing to him his character. This shows us that this is a coming of mercy and not of judgment. The third thing that shows that this is a merciful meeting is that he is blinded. Did you see that? Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by their hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. This blindness is a mercy. Paul's blindness is the Lord communicating to Saul... His spiritual blindness. Where do I get that from? You see, Saul thought that he saw, but in fact he was blind. Saul had all this zeal, knowing that, thinking that he understands the ways of God, but in fact he was wrong. He was in reality blind. Jesus called Pharisees like Saul blind guides. In Matthew 23, he said they are blind guides. And now Jesus is striking Saul with blindness so that Saul can really see that he actually does not see. You see, it is a great mercy, my friends, to be shown that you are wrong. It's a great mercy to be shown that you are wrong. Because if you're being shown that you are wrong, it means that there's an opportunity to cause correct. If you're being shown that you are wrong, it means that there's an opportunity to fix it. Many people die thinking that what they're zealous about is correct. But Saul received mercy while he was alive. He was shown that he was wrong. The Bible says the beginning of knowledge is what? It's the fear of the Lord. The beginning of knowledge is not zeal for religious systems. The beginning of knowledge is trembling at God's self-revelation. And here Saul is blinded. And troubled such that he doesn't eat for three days. This is what the gospel does. The gospel is an entire reorganization of your beliefs. If you were zealous for a previous religious system, coming to the Lord Jesus will turn that completely upside down. Such that you see that all of that was blindness. No system of thought or belief is not affected when a man or a woman comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your understanding of science is affected. Your understanding of philosophy is affected. Your affections are affected. Jesus Christ saves the whole person and leaves nothing unturned. The blindness of Saul here is really metaphoric, not only for Saul's blindness, but for all of our blindness. The world is full of people who think they know, but they are wrong. The world is full of people. You you will not go ten steps without finding people who are zealous and passionate about things that they are banking their life on, and they are entirely wrong. We think we have attained to a scientific sophistication, but scientific advancement without the fear of the Lord does not profit anything on the Day of Judgment. We think we know how to hustle and make money, but what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? We think we are proud of our cultures and the way of our forefathers, and everyone is defending their history, but your heritage will be dust and ashes unless you are counted among the redeemed. All of this is a blindness. All of this is a chasing after the wind. Just, you know, when you cut a, a, a chicken's head off and it starts running around? That's what all of what people are doing is. It's just blindness. You're running around not knowing what you're doing, where you're going, but you're running around with passion and zeal. Until that passion runs out of you. And by God's grace, those of you who are in Christ were once blind like this. But like Paul himself says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And your blindness was removed. We need to praise God for that. The song of a Christian is a song of recognition that I was lost. I thought I knew, but I didn't. It was not until I was changed, it was not until I experienced the grace of God in my heart that I finally opened my eyes and understood. And we should all, dear saints, sing our own versions of that song to praise God and consider how He rescued you from the blindness that you had. That is a very necessary thing. Psalm 107 tells us, let those who are lost sing this way. Those who are in these different kinds of trouble, let them sing and praise God for what He has done in bringing them out of that darkness. But for you who is in here today, and you think that you know, and you're comfortable living outside of God's grace, let me tell you that you do not know. You have eyes, but you do not see. You have ears, but you do not hear. My friend, you have a mind, but your reasoning is impaired because you lack true knowledge. The fear of God. If you're in here this morning, and your ways are just yours, you you lead yourself, you you run your own life in the way that you think is right, you do not consult the Lord, you are not thinking about the Lord, You, you are very happy to live outside of the grace of God. Let me tell you to consider your ways, test your ways to see if they are leading you to life. You will find that in the midst of all of your striving and all of your zeal, you are not getting what you want. In all of this striving that you have, in all of this striving for religious purity or striving for for freedom to do whatever it is you want, by by all accounts you are weak and are a disappointment even to yourself. Forget being a disappointment to other people, you're a disappointment to yourself. You're blind. Your striving must stop. You must bow the knee to Jesus Christ so that He can open your eyes with His wonderful grace. That is exactly here what he does for Saul. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Mananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision. Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. The Lord appears to Ananias and he gives Ananias an address that he must go to, to pray for Saul. And Ananias, understandably so, is apprehensive at this command. Wait, Lord, are we talking about the same guy here? Lord, I I know you're sovereign, you're king. But just want to let you know, I've heard stuff about this guy. Okay, Just, I'm, I don't, just, just imagine this. Just, Lord, I, 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 I love you, my Lord, but just this guy came here with a purpose. We were all talking about how we're going to avoid him. We were all here trying to figure out a way to not be seen by this guy when he gets here. Are you sure this is the same guy we're talking about? And in wrestling with the Lord in that way, the Lord reveals his plans for Saul to Ananias. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. And before kings and before the children of Israel. This is the means by which I will work Ananias. To bring my name before the world. And on top of that, he will suffer for my name. Not only here, my friends, is Saul forgiven, but he will be used greatly by God. This is a turning point in the narrative. The Lord is appointing a brand new apostle who will ensure that the work among the Gentiles is accomplished. The first group of apostles did not do this in the way that the Lord said. He scattered them abroad and they have been resistant to do what he said. He's going to deal, we're going to, see this. we're going to see this resistance in chapters 10 and 11 all the way through chapter 15. The first group of apostles are still wrestling with what it means to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so the Lord appoints this new apostle. Not only am I going to turn you on your head, but I'm going to make you the guy who actually takes this message that you hate and spread it further and farther away more than, more than before. And in that, Ananias is given courage, and he goes to lay hands on Saul. And Saul sees. And at the preaching of Ananias, he is baptized as a brother in the Lord. So so far, what have we learned? So in this narrative, we have learned the testimony of the apostle Paul, and how it is that he came to be one of the children of God. And in learning that, we have seen that God, you, while you, God usually destroys his enemies he also at certain times decides to give mercy. While it is his normal course to destroy and fight with those who fight against him, he does a lot of the times, perhaps even more so, give mercy to his enemies. So one sub-lesson here as we close for Christians is this. Who do you deem to be an enemy of the church? Who do you deem to be against the ways of God? I'm not talking about against your ways. That's an entirely different situation altogether. Against the ways of the Lord. Who do you, when you think about them, you think this guy is absolutely, categorically, just, I wish this guy would just disappear. Because this guy gives problems to the church. While you might pray imprecatory psalms, and you'd be perhaps... It, depending on the situation, particularly in the case of false teachers, you would be right to do so. To pray that the Lord would, would completely shut him up. You might also want to pray that the Lord might give to that man or that woman the same mercy that he gave to Saul of Tarsus. You might want to pray as well that the Lord might look at all the enemies of his church and pray exactly like Stephen did. Do you remember what Stephen did after Saul made sure that he dies? He said, Lord Jesus, do not hold this against them, for they know not what they do. Perhaps that should be your prayer. That perhaps should be the prayer, the initial prayer in our hearts when we think of the enemies of God. That Lord, we know it is your will and you would be right to judge them and break their teeth in. But Lord, wouldn't it be glorious if you were to turn this evil cretin If you are to turn this miscreant and completely turn him around. And make him glorify your name. And praise you among the Gentiles. And you will find that the Lord will answer that prayer. Because he loves to do so. He loves to save sinners. Amen. Let's pray. While Lord we while we might not all be able to say that we were on a road to Damascus to do something this this much, like this, as Saul is doing, we can all say and testify that we were sinners, that we were your enemies, that you did had a right to destroy us, have a right to destroy us and completely destroy everything that we are. But by your grace and mercy, you showed yourself to us. You came to us, not in judgment, but in mercy. Someone came to us and shared the gospel, or we heard it somehow, or our parents did, and finally it came through to our minds. Oh Lord, we praise you for this. When we see this testimony of Paul, we can't help but think of our own testimonies. How you have worked in us and taken us from horrible situations and saved us. And so Lord, we pray that you continue to do this work among us. If there are any who are here, an enemy of the gospel, hating you and your law, won't you do what you do best, turning your enemies into friends? We pray this, Lord, and we trust you, knowing that you can do it. And you desire to do it in many instances. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.